Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. Drew and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, October 23rd, 2022. So, Drew, is this, is this beginning to look a lot like Halloween? What's going on? It is. Well, you know Toluca Lake, Jim. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's absolutely out of control. Yeah, I think later today we are supposed to go on a walk with some friends who have kids because the, uh, yeah, all the decorations are fully in force. You know, if you have a neighborhood that counts a bunch of former Imagineers and Rick Baker amongst the, um, <laughs> amongst the denizens that you're going to get some good, uh, good Halloween decorations. So yeah. Okay. No Bob Hope anymore, sadly, but yeah, I know no more full size candy bars. Okay. Well, I want a full report on next week's show. Okay. I'll give it to you. All right. Lots of animation news this week, folks. But before we get to the news, of course, we have to acknowledge that the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network. For a worry-free travel experience, please book online at storybookdestinations.com. To follow up on last week's show, we talked about the the late uh, Dame Angela Lansbury, and a couple of folks wanted to point out that she hadn't just done the voice of Mrs. Potts for the animated feature Beauty and the Beast and and then the Bell Saves Christmas or whatever it is, or One Magical Christmas, excuse me. They also wanted to point out that Angela had also done the voice of Mrs. Potts for the Kingdom Hearts game. Did you ever play that? I didn't. I mean, I am I am more of a casual gamer, Jim. I am, okay. Uh, anything too complicated does not really uh, flow my boat. But I know people love them, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I uh, I know that they're very very popular. Did you see the animatic that showed up online earlier this week? I guess Seth Kersley, who was the director of the Dilbert animated series, the also Adam Sandler's Eight Crazy Nights animated feature as well as the Looney Tunes show, made the decision to put out this project that he'd worked on back in 2003, which was the an, an animatic sort of a proof of concept for a Kingdom Hearts animated series. Yeah, I did see that on Twitter. But do you want to give some background on what this was exactly? This was an action role-playing game that Square Enix developed in collaboration with Disney. A very first Kingdom Hearts game hit store shelves back in March of 2002 and was designed for the PlayStation 2 and a huge success and and launched a a giant franchise. In fact, as of October of last year, 35 million copies of various forms of this game have been shipped worldwide. And so it's really not a surprise given that sort of success that Disney requests that they make a run at doing a Kingdom Hearts animated series in early 2003. It was kind of a ticking clock because they knew that a second game, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories, was coming out in fall of 2004, and and this was, was being developed for the Game Boy. So what Disney was hoping was that they could have the animated series up and ready for the fall of 2004. So with the the thought that it could cash in on the success of Chain of Memories and also help promote the the Game Boy Advance version of the game. And Seth's an animation professional, so he took an interesting approach to the Kingdom Hearts uh, animatic. He didn't build it around an origin story for the show. He rather 
dove right into the pile and picked episode seven of the proposed series, which was set in the world of Aladdin. And Kersley had a, a kind of an interesting thought process here. He's like, look, Disney television animation had at that point already produced three seasons of Disney's Aladdin, the animated series. Uh, they'd also produced the two direct-to-video sequels, uh, Return of Jafar and Aladdin, the King of Thieves. So, so the thinking was that it wouldn't be all that hard for Disney television animation, the folks who work there, to slip back into this world, that they could deliver a really, really good-looking show with minimum effort. And the company really got behind this. You know, if you watch the animatic, or more to the point, listen to the animatic, these aren't temporary voices, Drew. These are the actual folks from Disney who voice the characters. I mean, they brought Bill Farmer back to do Goofy. Tony Ensemble is doing Donald. Even Jonathan Freeman, who is the voice of Jafar from the, the actual Aladdin feature from 92, he came back to voice Jafar. Frank Welker, who voiced the Cave of Wonders, also came back and, and voiced that for this, this Kingdom Heart pilot. And... It also kind of speaks volumes that Jiminy Cricket, who factors into the show, they brought in Eddie Carroll, who had been the official replacement voice for Jiminy Cricket since Cliff Edwards died back in July of 77. He was the one on all the uh, the early vacation uh, channel <laughs> guides and things, if you'll recall. There you go. There you it's go. A little bit of a different... You know, uh, Jiminy Cricket, but, but it still it still has that DNA, Jim, you know? No, it, it does. It does. And Eddie was doing that just till we lost him a couple of years ago. This wasn't the first time that Disney had done let's do all of our characters in one show thing. I mean, Disney television and animation by that point had produced two seasons of Mickey Mouse Works from May of 99 through December of 2000. That show then mutated into House of Mouse which ran January of 2001 through October of 2003. So it wasn't that Kingdom Hearts would have been that big a deal. It's like, look, we've done shows where we have all of our characters together already. We're comfortable doing this. But going with the Kingdom Hearts project would have basically just been an extension of Mickey Mouse Works and House of Mouse. But the problem was that Disney had research in hand that suggested that the Kingdom Hearts, people who were playing the Kingdom Hearts games were older. They were 11 to like 15 years old. Whereas the demographic that was watching Mickey Mouse Works and House of Mouse were six to nine year olds. And, and the worry in house is we're, we're about to spend a lot of money on making a show that maybe there isn't an actually an audience there for. And at the same time, you got to remember that Disney is also watching the box office for its traditionally animated films shrink. And there was a thinking in-house at this point that of all the characters at the company that most perhaps needed to make the jump from hand-drawn to CG was Mickey. In fact, you've seen Mickey's PhilharMagic, right? Oh, of course. Yeah, it really, okay. it really sucks for the most part. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would cannot believe would it's not, still playing. It it it, <laughs> it is still playing. We we just had that brand new Coco scene drop in earlier this year. But the one real true failure of that film is Mickey's name is in the title, but he's barely in the film, largely because they couldn't get their arms around how to do his ears. 
and 3D perspective. That that's why you know Mickey just sort of comes in at the end very quickly, or I, I think he runs at the beginning and then he's out, and then he runs at the end. But he's never on screen long enough for you to really get a, a grasp on the character. So, and remember that debuts in the park in October of 2003. So again, this is kind of in the same window of when everything's going on with Kingdom Hearts. It takes another two and a half years before the company finally figures out how to properly do Mickey in CG and in perspective. And and that show, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, debuts in May of 2006 and is deliberately aimed at preschoolers (laughs) because, well, they're not really all that discerning consumers. And if if we have a couple of shots where Mickey's ears don't work, it's not like we're going to get letters. And even if we're going to get letters, they'll be in crayon. So who's going to pay attention? Anyway, Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, though, runs for more than a decade. 126 episodes, ends in November of 2016, then gets followed by, what, Mickey and the Roadster Racers, Mickey's Mixed Up Adventures, and most recently, Mickey Mouse Funhouse, all CG, and again, all of them aimed at the, the preschool audience. It's not till 2013 that we start to get Paul Ruddish's wonderful Mickey Mouse shorts and those are all hand-drawn, and, and those really do play to an older audience. I'm told that they were created for 8 to 15-year-olds, but, but they play for everybody. Whereas uh, Kingdom Hearts is an, is an ongoing concern, we had uh, the latest version of the game, Melody of Memories, that came out in November of 2020 from the Nintendo Switch, PlayStation 4, and the Xbox. And in April of this year, Square Enix revealed that Kingdom Hearts 4 is in development. And in addition, there's another game, Kingdom Hearts Missing Link, that's in development for the ISO and Android devices. we, We have no delivery dates on these. Though you did hear in the past week that the Play Pavilion for Epcot's World Discovery section got canceled, right? Yeah, Jim, you could imagine the shock, the absolute <laughs> shock that coursed through my body when I heard that. Look, they had begun construction. Contracts had gone out for the individual elements inside of the play pavilion. I mean, this was, you know, the, there was money not on the not just on the table that but had already been spent on this pavilion. So, uh, D- Disney's got to walk around and make good in a lot of different different directions to folks who were already working on stuff that were going into that building. The whole idea of the play pavilion was supposed to be that it would allow different divisions of the company, like Disney gaming and and publishing and, and the like, to trot out new projects. I mean, in a weird sort of way, it was going to be not a play pavilion, but a, a, a play test pavilion. You'd see things in there that you'd maybe see either on store shelves or in other attractions within a year or two. And so it's kind of a big deal to walk away from it. And it's also worth noting that they were supposed to have a Kingdom Hearts themed attraction inside the building. I mean, not a ride, not a show. Then what, Jim? (laughs) It was going to be a a demo of, of Kingdom Hearts 4. And, you know, the, with the idea that people come into the door and get to play that and get all excited about it and then go home and, ooh, you know, pre-order the game. Well, that was also supposed to be, you know, Chapek was obsessed with this black box idea mm-hmm. of, you know, being able to modularly put in attractions that don't take five years or, in the mm-hmm. case of Tron, 
light cycle run several decades to build and, and uh, <laughs> open. So that was, you know, this was supposed to be a real proof of concept for something that he was really, really excited about. And that must, it must sting to have that L, um, you know. But the other thing is that, you know, we the the concept art from it was getting so dated because it was like, you know, DuckTales, which was canceled several years ago, and I cannot believe that they're still going through with the Epcot thing. We'll have to talk about that when it's up and running. But it's just like all this stuff that is not a corporate priority in the cruel, synergistic uh, language of the company. Not today's version. Yes, yeah. You know, the late October of 2022, and notice that even in that case, what the priorities of the company are in late October 2020, which were different than early in October of 2022. The one thing I, I was kind of hoping for was that if this thing had actually opened, if the, the play pavilion at Epcot had opened, and again, this showcasing of Kingdom Hearts 4 were to happen, have you ever seen the pictures of the Sora official Disney produced by its own costume department, Sora? Uh, that that showed up in the park. I, I want to say it was only seen at a a Mickey's Not So Scary Halloween party in 2004, and that's the only time it came into the park. No, I haven't seen it. When we finish here, hammer on Google. I mean, right down to the giant key, the weird shaped sneakers, and the big hair. But it was done as not as a face character, but a but a mask character, which a little disconcerting, but. But anyway, all right, so that, that's all of our Kingdom Hearts-related news. And again, if you're looking for something interesting to look at or, or want to get a look at what the process is when you, you're pitching and trying to sell a show, go check out this thing that Seth Kersley put up earlier in the week. Beyond that, were you surprised to learn about this Mickey Saves Christmas stop-motion thing from Stupid Buddy Studio? I was, actually. I, this was not on my radar at all. So to see that announcement and not really that big of a hubbub around it. So still no. kind of under the radar, mm-hmm. but you and I both love stop motion so much. So I think this we is do, we do. And, yeah. But also anybody who's watched Robot Chicken and the way that Seth Green and, and, and the team over there occasionally weighed in on the Disney characters, you know, there was a lot of forgiving uh, that went on before Disney reached out and got these guys on board to do Mickey Saves Christmas because some of the stuff they've done with the characters is just savage. But also, what fascinates me about this one is that this is a, a big, old-fashioned style push for this thing. I mean, Mickey Saves Christmas is going to be simulcast. We've got four different outlets on Sunday, November 27th. It's going to be simulcast on Disney Channel, Disney Junior, Disney XD, and ABC from 7 to 7.30 on Sunday night, November 27th, and the very next day. It debuts on Disney Plus, November 28th or thereabouts. And I guess I've been spoiled by the Paul Ruddish holiday shorts because this one of, you know, Mickey, Minnie, and their pals attempt to celebrate the perfect Christmas in their snowy cabin. But when Pluto causes Santa to lose all of the presents in his sleigh, the, the friends travel to the North Pole in a quest to save Christmas and find the true meaning of the holiday. And it's. Do you, you ever see the Paul Ruddish one where Donald decides to say north rather than flying south to experience what christmas is like yes i love that one yes (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I've been spoiled by Paul. I like a little edge with my mouse these days. And it's like, this sounds cute. I mean, I'll definitely watch it because I like stop motion. And it does sound like Disney is trying to step into the whole Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer space. But I think I will follow my viewing of Mickey Saves Christmas by digging out the, the Paul Ruddish Mickey Saves Donald from Molting to Death show. Yes, yes. Also speaking of animated and on Disney+, Plus, just this week, Star Wars Tales of the Jedi debuts on Wednesday, October 26th. Have you had a chance to see this yet? Or? I've seen some of it. The episodes were actually longer than I thought they were going to be. I thought they were going to be like five or six minutes. They're actually between 14 and 17 minutes each. Yes. So you know me, Jim. I was trying to like sneak it in while working and I was like, oh, I can get a couple of these done. But then then I started watching it and it was like, oh, okay, no, this I have to actually like sit down and and watch these. But I can say that. The style that we have somewhat bemoaned in the past, Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. the uh, pseudo Thunderbirds-esque style, Mm -hmm. has evolved a little bit, thankfully. Uh, So it is a much Mm -hmm. richer-looking animation style. And uh, the music, which I believe is by Kevin Kilner, is also great. Mm -hmm. And it's just very interesting because the episodes kind of toggle between Ahsoka Tano and Mm -hmm. Count Dooku, and you get more Mm -hmm. of their backstory. You actually see... Ahsoka, like, being born, basically, right after she was born. And so you see where mm-hmm. she grew up and all this stuff. And it's uh, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, diehard Star Wars fans are going to get a lot out of these episodes. But just know it is more of a time commitment than I originally thought. So, yes, just take that take that to heart. Yeah. Okay. And again, that starts uh, Wednesday this week, October 26th. We also got a trailer for the next Diary of a Wimpy Kid uh, CG film. This comes on the heels of the one that that came uh, debuted on Disney Plus just last year, the original Diary of a Wimpy Kid. This one is Diary of a Wimpy Kid, Roderick Rules. And what did we think of the trailer, Drew? I mean, I I think that animation style is... I mean, it's appropriate for the... I like Mm -hmm. that it looks like the illustrations from the books. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty cheap uh, looking, I think. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Did you ever watch the first one? I did not. I did Me not. neither. And, you know, again, that, that went live December 3rd of 2021. And this one it debuts on Disney Plus almost a year to the day on uh, Friday, December 2nd. So I will make an effort to watch the first one before I see the second one in the series. Uh, on the other hand, I don't know if I'm willing to watch all 48 of the DC Universe animated original movies before I sit down and watch Batman and Superman Battle of the Super Sons. 49th of that series just hit store shelves this past Tuesday, October 18th. It's the first CG one. Did debut, however, it was it did have its premiere at Comic-Con earlier this month, back on October 7th, and got uh, very high marks and, and great views, so I'll make an effort to check it out. And Speaking of great reviews, you were talking about all of the cool stuff that was being said about Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio coming out of the 66th BFI London Film Festival. Yeah, I mean, uh, the reviews are absolutely insane. I think it has like a 92% on Metacritic. And I've seen a push sort of on Twitter, and I believe, you know, I brought this up last year with Encanto, but... 
to actually have the uh, movie nominated in some of the technical categories that animated films typically don't get nominated in, like costume and cinematography and things like that, because it is such an achievement. And it seems like it is kind of opening doors to animated fare that normally maybe wouldn't be opened. So Guillermo was talking about the credits. Yes, I saw that. Typically in a situation like this, you play up, you know, who the celebrities that you brought on to voice uh, various characters. But Guillermo is like, look, the real stars of this movie are the animators, the people who actually brought these characters to life. So he's done the credits in such a way that the, the animators are as much in the spotlight as the celebrities who are voicing the characters, which ties in with what you were just saying about look at the costumes, look at the sets, you know, that this should be taken seriously as a, a real form of, of filmmaking, just like live action. And which makes me think of Brad Bird, you know, with the whole argument of, you know, animation is not a genre. It's filmmaking. Show me another Oscar movie that shot for a thousand days, Jim, and sometimes with 60 different units going at the same time. I honestly would love it if Netflix can get behind this and really push this because it's animation is due. When you think about how many of the biggest box office films of the past three decades how much of that is CG? You know, how much of that literally is you You are performing alongside of an animated character. I don't care if you're in a Marvel movie or James Cameron film or, or that sort of thing. You know, it's CG has been front and center and it's and that's animation. And it's time for it to be taken seriously. Have we talked about the whole Apollo 10 and a half thing yet? I did a little bit of this. In fact, Mr. Linklater, you know, he's... He's resubmitted because it was, isn't it on the whole back of the type of animation that makes use of... Oh, rotoscoping. Rotoscoping, yeah. 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 But that was a style choice for this, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of animation. Like, you know, they, they didn't shoot with sets, I don't think, or anything. Like, everything was painted in, and it's a much mm -hmm. more loose... Um, it's much more animation than some of his other movies which also featured rotoscope animation. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know what that whole thing is about, but it's really infuriating. And, and every time one of these things happens, it kind of dings the entire industry because as he was saying, like, how often are people going to take chances on animation if they can't even get the awards recognition that they deserve? So, yeah, it's, it's a huge issue. I don't know. I cannot figure out why they chose to ding it like that because it is a wonderful movie and uh you know it's a beautifully animated and should be uh in the conversation i think for me it would be a wonderful one-two punch if richard's taken it back to the academy and asked for them to reconsider the decision and, and you know to have that happen in the same window of guillermo sort of like look at the costumes look at the sets this should be considered for other categories i mean i i love that sort of saber rattling yeah now speaking of getting back to guillermo's pinocchio i have a in select cinemas in november you know followed by its debut on netflix december 9th now if i want to go see wendell and wild this coming friday i actually have choices about where i can go on October 21st oh, really? to see see this you know there, there's a couple of cinemas in in uh, Massachusetts and there's you know if I'm willing to drive down to New York there's also a couple down there 
before it, it formally debuts on Netflix on, on the 28th. And I really, really, really want to see Guillermo's Pinocchio up on the big screen. But as of Monday of this week, I could buy tickets to Wakanda Forever. But I'll be damned if I can find anybody who's offering me tickets to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which I have to tell you, if I'm weighing between the two, I mean, I'm seeing both of them for work, but I'm really looking forward to Pinocchio. Yeah, I hope that the this whole Glass Onion thing, because they they're doing a fairly wide rollout mm-hmm. for that. I hope that that kind of gets things in check and then, you know, going forward that Netflix movies can be afforded a little bit more of a wide release. Although I think that on the recent earnings call, they said that they had no real plans on expanding that because, you know, that's part of the the incentive to have Netflix is to get these movies first and get them exclusively. So I get that. But if you're, you're marching into your first round of, of award season screenings and yeah. cocktail parties and that sort of thing, and and I don't know if you saw out ahead of Glass Onion, you know, how Ryan Johnson was talking about he's going to be making these Knives Out movies for as long as, you know, Daniel Craig wants to make them. You know, they had such a good time making the second one. I'm almost embarrassed at the fact that I have not seen the original yet, and it was actually shot in my hometown of Maynard, Massachusetts. Oh, Jim, you've got to see it. It's such a delight. It I, really I keep is. hearing that, and my, and my mother has seen it. You know, a couple of times at this point, it's like they at one point they, they literally drive. They, there's a car chase staged through my sleepy little town. And again, it's like, I got to get to that at some point. Yes. Anyway, we were just talking about Wendell and Wild, Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio, and likewise, Mickey Saves Christmas. And we're lucky enough, some years we just get one stop motion project. Though I, I think having Robot Chicken as a series has spoiled us. But here we get three. And... I thought we might use that as an excuse to maybe take a look back at how Disney has dabbled in stop motion for over six decades now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's cool about Wendell and Wild is this is Henry Selleck, and of course Henry Selleck is associated with perhaps this time of year one of the films you just cannot escape, which is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. But you've actually gotten the chance to talk with Henry, right? Yeah, I talked to him. Uh, f- there was a long lead day for Wendell and Wild a few months ago, and so I mm-hmm. I got to talk to him there. But you know, I had to bring up something that we'll discuss in a minute, which is his mm-hmm. his failed. Uh, attempts uh, to do a new movie for Disney mm-hmm. a few years ago. Yeah, Shadow King, and, and again, hang in there, folks. There's some great stories coming. But 
Disney stayed in its lane for animation for decades. And I think a lot of that came from the earlier part of Walt's career where when he was doing the Alice comedies, there were a number of folks who sort of looked at that and said, you're just taking what Max Fleischer is doing with his Out of the Inkwell shows and reversing it. You know, instead of having a cartoon character out in the real world, you put a real person in the cartoon world. And so Walt, for a time, you know, just thought, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stay with, with hand-drawn shorts. We won't step into George Powell's world because he did those, those amazing stop-motion shorts. And before he then moved on to do sci-fi and live-action things like War of the Worlds and when Worlds Collide and that sort of thing. But starting in, in November of 59, we start to see Walt dabbling in stop-motion. There, there's a a 20-minute-long featurette called Noah's Ark that Disney, a couple of years later, actually builds an entire episode of the uh, wonderful world of color around. It's called the uh, a rag, a bone, and a box of junk. And it, it just talks about, you know, the, how the look of the, the Noah's Ark short. In fact, uh, if we jump ahead down to, to June of 61, Exitensio, you know, before he became the, the legendary Imagineer who worked on Pirates in Haunted Mansion, he he did a stop motion, uh, the title sequence for The Parent Trap. Walt was always at that point looking for fodder for episodes of The World of Color. So there's actually an episode, in fact, you can look at it now on YouTube called The Title Makers that shows Exitensio and his fellow animators at work on how they crafted the stop motion opening sequence for The Parent Trap. And the skill set that they had developed, this dabbling at stop motion, got showcased in Babes in Toyland when they did the March of the Wooden Soldiers for, for that thing. And I remember talking with Bill Justice about this at one point, and he was talking about he longed to go back to his pencil because it was all of this labor intensive of swapping out legs and heads and making sure you, you know, everybody was all the way out of the shot before you hammered, you know, the button for that one frame of action. And he said, there's a reason when you're watching the movie, when you can clearly tell that we're now, we switch back to live action and we're pulling oversized toys or that sort of thing with wires. Cause it's just like, we, there was no way we're going to get this stuff done by December. If we kept doing stop motion, we just didn't have enough time. But it, it was successful enough and noticeable enough that when it came time to do Mary Poppins and the, the cleaning up of the nursery scene again, Walt was like, hey, break out those babes in Toyland wooden soldiers again. Let, let's see them one more time and have them march into the toy box. And poor Bill Justice was like, oh, no, I don't want to do this again. Then we lose Walt in December of 66, and it animation comes perilously close to being shut down. So the, there is no experimenting going on. It's just, we are doing hand-drawn. At that point, they're even cutting back on the amount of the use of the multiplane camera. It's like, look, it's all we can do to actually get these movies made. We can't be doing special things anymore. But as the 60s give way to the 70s, which then lead to the 80s, you have a number of folks at the studio who want to try to do d different things. And among them, of course, is Tim Burton. And isn't this the first time Henry Selleck actually worked on Vincent with Tim Burton, didn't he? 
He did. Yeah, Henry okay. Selick worked on it, and uh, Heinrich's... Uh, there we go. Uh, yeah, Rick I mean, Heinrich. It's, it, I it's, was a, just... it's a murderer's row of, of oh, like yeah. key Burton collaborators, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was successful enough that when Disney then decided they were going to do Return to Oz, they wanted it to look different. They wanted it to look special. And they'd actually lost an Academy Award, you know, that they'd gone head to head with Will Vinton. I, I, I think Disney had something that was going up against Close Sunday and, and lost to that. And it's like, we want to work with that kid. So the gnomes of the Gnome King section of Return to Oz, Will's studio out in Portland does all the work on that. And Unfortunately, that film comes out in June of 1985 and, and doesn't do any business and was kind of a one-two punch because March of that same year, Will's attempt at doing a full-length animated feature that was strictly claymation. Uh, the Adventures of Mark Twain comes and goes at the box office within a week or so. It just it couldn't connect with the audience. Wait, you forget your, your, your chronology is, is missing a key moment, Jim. Which is? Which is 1989, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Phil Tippett's amazing scorpion scene oh, with the ants. You're, you're right. You're which, right. Okay. Which was when he was developing the original mm-hmm. version of Dinosaur with Paul Verhoeven for Disney. And that was when he told me the story when he was on the lot and he ran into Kathy Kennedy and she said, no. you know, we're working on this other dinosaur thing. Maybe you want to come <laughs> to that instead. And that was, of course, Jurassic Park. So there we go. I think it all worked out for the best. But I would have loved to have seen his, you know, version with Verhoeven. You know, I almost included that in the uh, the chronology. In fact, uh, June of 81, I have uh, Dragon Slayer, the Disney Paramount co-production that was a showcase for the next generation of stop motion, the go motion, where the notion was that the second that you're hitting the camera, even as you're posing the figure, you move it just a little bit to give it that real life type blur. But again, because that was kind of a, a Disney Paramount co-production and really, you know, more Paramount driving the bus there than Disney. I didn't include it, but it, but anyway... No, that's an excellent point about uh, Honey, I Shrunk. The, yeah, the, uh, aren't there a few scenes also with Anti that are done in stop motion as well? Or? Yeah, I think that was I think that was Phil too, yeah. 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 And the bee, right? Yep. How could we forget the bee that we were all treated to on the behind-the-scenes <laughs> tour at Disney MGM Studios? Well, we'll, we'll face it. into us what an accomplishment that bee was. Yep. <laughs> well, well, face it, if... If our, our friend of the show, Mr. Gad, has his way and Shrunk actually goes forward, I, I would imagine we're all going to have to revisit the original Honey, I Shrunk just to be familiar with you know where the story takes us. All right, this brings us up uh, finally to October of 93. Uh, we have Tim Burton's Night Paper for Christmas, which long fabled production. Do you remember hearing the stories about how in mid, mid-production and the very thing you were talking about earlier about with Guillermo, the 60 different stop motion setups are there as they're, they're trying to churn out their footage per week. And they were up in the Bay Area making Nightmare when they had an earthquake. I, I want to say 20 or 30 sets were still before cameras when that happened. And the whole notion was like, oh, crap. You know, what happened? What moved? You know, and you won't find out until you developed the film. 
But that then brings us uh, up to another nine years go by before Disney's willing to make another run at stop motion. And that is Frankenweenie, which is an expansion of the December 1984 live action featurette. I remember seeing this in theaters in December of 84, where it was clear Disney had no idea what to do with it. I want to say they put it in front of a re-release of Pinocchio. You couldn't talk about two more different tonal projects, but it was just sort of like Michael had come through the door and it's like, what is this? It's like, I don't know. Put it out in theaters. Let's get it out of here. Whereas you got to see the full-length stop-motion Frank and Weenie, and, and wonderfully done, but I still don't know what audience that was intended for. In fact, during a month like October, when you have Freeform doing its you know, 31 days of Halloween, Frank and Weenie, I mean, we get 13, 14 different showings of Focus Pocus, and we're lucky if we get one or two screenings of, of Frankenweenie. Any thoughts there? Or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really <laughs> like this movie, but yeah, I have no idea who it was. For. I mean, why it was black and white, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, it, it, it's totally insane. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, it, it, to me, it felt very much like they were trying to reward him for the the Alice in Wonderland success. Oh. I know that this was one of the projects that they had signed him on in mm-hmm. the aftermath of that. But, mm-hmm. you know, this was also a Dick Cook thing that he was very interested in doing, like, darker things for kids. Mm-hmm. He was the one that that tried to get Guillermo's uh, Disney Double Dare You going. And, you know, it's very weird to see at the beginning of Pinocchio it says a Double Dare You production. You know, so it's like, well, at least that lives on somewhere, some somehow. Mm. But um, yeah, it's it, different regimes, Jim. If we could now get started talking about Henry Selick's The Shadow King, which was put in motion while Dick Cook was still in the building, right? Yes, yes, this was a Dick Cook uh, green light. Yeah. So let's talk about what Henry shared with you about what happened with. His return to the Mouse House and return to to doing a stop motion animated feature for Disney. Uh, Well, he said, you know, we developed it pretty far. We went into production. We had shot about five minutes. And then they went Mm -hmm. through a big shuffle, a big change at Disney, which is referring to Alan Horn coming in to run Mm -hmm. the the motion picture division. And Mm -hmm. Henry said two things. The budget kept going up because John Lasseter couldn't help but come in and change everything every few months because that's Mm -hmm. who he is. And maybe that's how the best work has been done there. Uh, At the end of the day, it was costing too much, and it was stop motion. It was a little weird that they decided to pull the plug. Never saw it coming, but it was also a relief because to constantly start over and over and over while you're trying to give people work to do on the stage was a challenge. Mm -hmm. So he said that there had been three stop motion features that had just come out right before that. Frank and Weenie was the last of them. None of them were very successful at the box office, so it was decided, uh, it happened to me before, it'll probably happen to me again, stop motion, why would we take a chance on this ancient technology? But the really sad thing, too, is that when that was killed off, also the Graveyard book, which was Mm -hmm. Selleck's adaptation of the wonderful Neil Gaiman novel, Mm -hmm. said, that went, he said, that went away as well, but they still never cracked it. Selleck claims that he did crack it and knew how to tell the story. 
So, oh. you know, Disney publicly announced an $80 million write-down on the projects and returned the rights of the Shadow King to Selleck. You know, he said, Oof. as far as what I went through, it took a long time to get back on my feet to try to get mm-hmm. something else going again. It just felt mm-hmm. like, wow, if they'll shut down a movie when you've already started. That mm-hmm. was something I couldn't have imagined. It just really, it made me really leery of trying to do something else. Mm-hmm. And then, so- yeah. Then he met Jordan Peele and everything worked out. So Well, you know, in fact, I, I was reading some interviews you know, out ahead of, of the launch of Wonder Woman Wild, and he was talking about, you know, Henry fell into a funk, you know, to work this hard on a movie and it'd be actually moving forward and have somebody pull the plug, you know, just kind of, you know, throws you off your game for a while. And, and one of the crutches or one of the, the, the light preserver during this period was he could watch key and peel and it was just one of these things where it's like this was this genuinely funny show that you know just just made him happy and at some point you know he just took a chance and reached out to them and said hey i i'm this guy and i do stop motion films and if you ever want to do anything in that field and it was jordan who was the the one who you know sort of started began collaborating with him on wonder and wild is that right or yeah, and what's interesting is that they started the collaboration before Get Out had come out, and Selick has told this story where Jordan was really worried, and he said, "Let's pitch mm-hmm. it before it comes out. Let's pitch it before Get Out comes out, because what if it, what if it sucks and nobody likes it, and then you know we'll never get this movie made, and then you know cut to uh. <laughs> a phenomenal opening. All of his movies have been hits, and." Um, yep. It puts Wendell and Wilde in a really good position. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, again, cannot wait. And, in fact, try to get out this weekend, uh, this coming weekend, and, and catch it on the big screen before it shows up on Netflix. But really, really, really looking forward to seeing, you know, Henry Selick's latest, especially given who his collaborative partners on this. And speaking of things that I really, really, really look forward to, uh, there is, of course... The wonderful Light Diffuse podcast, which Drew does with his equally talented co-host, Charles Hood. And uh, what are you guys up to with that show right now? Well, we're doing a lot of these sort of uh, repackaging episodes and and putting together a few. You know, if it was a multi-part episode, we're putting it all together and sending it out as one. So we did... uh, we did Robert Ellswit this past week. I think we're going to do another one um, very soon. So, you know, it's a really great way to catch up if you haven't listened to one of the older episodes with one of our great interviewees. And, um, yeah, it's uh, we're, we're hopefully planning some more Top Gun stuff for um, the Maverick home video release. Hopefully Jim Hill will actually buy a Blu-ray maybe and take it home and watch it. I don't know. Maybe I'm asking for too much, but... Uh, Drew, can you, they, you tell folks where they can find you uh, on social? Sure, uh, at Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on Instagram and Twitter. Come on by. Okay, and as for me, you can find uh, me on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and over on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. And that is going to do it for this week's show. So thank you for listening, folks, and Drew and I will be back soon. <laughs>